I will be reading John chapter 16, verses 16, I'm sorry, 25 through 33. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name and do not say to you, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have, I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you and good to be diving into the Word together. So when you think of motivational or inspirational or uplifting messages, what comes to your mind? Perhaps you think of popular slogans. If you can dream it, you can do it. Walt Disney. Believe in yourself, Norman Vincent Peale. Don't be pushed by your problems, be led by your dreams, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Or perhaps you think of certain iconic speeches, I have a dream, Martin Luther King Jr. Ich bin ein Berliner, for those of you who are a little older, John F. Kennedy, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, Franklin D. Roosevelt. I wonder, though, would you consider the words of Jesus to be motivational, inspirational, or uplifting? In view of what was just read out for you, I suspect some of you, at least, would pause at the question. John 16, the focus of this sermon is from Jesus' farewell discourse, his last opportunity to speak with his disciples before his imminent arrest, trial, and death, his time for encouraging and inspiring his disciples for what lies ahead, indeed his last word to them in the upper room before he goes out to the garden. And he says, in the world you will have tribulation. 
interesting pedagogical take on encouragement. Of course, that's not all he said. Verse 33 begins, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. And it ends with, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But in the middle, Jesus is clear. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, not perhaps, not if you love me enough and have enough faith, I will spare you tribulation, but you, my loved disciples, whom I am dying for, you will in the world have tribulation. Now, as I said, this, this verse, John 16, occurs as the last word from Jesus to his disciples in this famous farewell discourse. It's basically comprised of chapters 14 through 16. And throughout the whole thing, he's been preparing them for this moment. For example, in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says the same thing in chapter 14, verse 27. Though there, in that context, he also adds the words, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then a little bit further on in chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, he makes it very clear that they will face opposition in the world. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So, opposition in the world, the peace of Jesus, the exhortation to not let your hearts be troubled, to forsake fear. These are important themes that are woven throughout the entire discourse, and they come to climactic expression here in our passage at the end of the discourse, 1633. Let's look at it again. I hope you have your Bibles. Look down there, John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, likely these things referring to the entirety of the discourse, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the call for us this morning is quite simply to take heart. Because the reality is that Christians have already faced and will continue to face tribulation in the world. So how does that happen? How do we not live in fear, become discouraged, or become disheartened at the reality that we will face tribulation in the world? Well, this verse suggests four ways. First, we should expect tribulation on account of Jesus. Second, we should remember the victory of Jesus. Third, we should receive the peace of Jesus. And four, we should rest in our own certain victory as those who belong to Jesus.
by those four ways or means we can take heart. And we'll take them one at a time. So the first way for us to take heart is a bit paradoxically to expect tribulation. In other words, not to be surprised when it comes. Now this immediately flies in the face of some teaching that you would find in churches around the country, indeed around the world. It flies in the face of any kind of teaching that would say belonging to Jesus means earthly health and wealth, what we might call the hard prosperity gospel. Jesus' teaching here flies in the face of that. It also flies in the face of a kind of teaching that says something like this, that belonging to Jesus means Christians will experience a kind of American dream, middle class, comfortable, positive, hassle-free happiness. What we might call a soft prosperity gospel but a prosperity gospel nevertheless. Jesus' word here flies in the face of both versions of the prosperity gospel. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a sobering thought. But what exactly should we be expecting? In other words, what does Jesus mean by tribulation here? Well, throughout the New Testament, the specific word that Jesus uses here, flipsis, tribulation, can refer to specific persecution, it can refer to general suffering, or it can refer to both. For example, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Now, in that text, pretty clearly refers to persecution on account of being a Christian. On the other hand, listen to Acts 7.11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great flipsis, or the ESV translates it affliction, and our fathers could find no food. So clearly, the, the tribulation here refers to a more general kind of suffering, All the implications of a famine, hunger, poverty, severe weakness, even death. Or consider Romans 8.35, where Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, flipsis, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Tribulation in this text seems to be a broader category than persecution, since the very word persecution sits right next to it. And this also seems to be a broader word than just suffering because other specific words for suffering like distress sit right next to it. So, it can mean a few different things. What does Jesus mean here in John 16, Well, given what I just read for you from John 15, where Jesus talked to the disciples about how the world will hate them, on account of him, he at least has persecution in view. In fact, I would argue that is the main emphasis, a kind of opposition because of the fact that we are Christians. However, 
as I've pondered the farewell discourse as a whole, I'm also persuaded that we can't limit the tribulation that Jesus speaks of here to persecution alone. Consider this piece of evidence here. When Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples earlier in chapter 16, in view of their impending sorrow at the prospect of his soon departure, he likens the situation to a woman giving birth. So just drop your eyes back up a little bit to verses 21 and 22 of chapter 16. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish is what the ESV has, but it's the same word in Greek, flipsis, tribulation. She no longer remembers that for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So here, the word tribulation, translated anguish, clearly refers to the pain that attends childbirth. It's, it's part of the curse of this post-Genesis 3, post-fall world, which is then likened to the disciples' sorrow at the prospect of Jesus leaving, them losing a mentor, a close friend, indeed the Savior, Israel's deliverer and Messiah. In other words, their tribulation in that text is not persecution. And given that verse 21 is very close to verse 33, we're in the same context here, and given that these are the only two places in the Gospel of John where he uses this word for tribulation, I agree with John Calvin, then, who understands tribulation here to encompass what he calls many distresses and many afflictions attending this fallen world. He helpfully likens the world in which we experience this tribulation to a troubled sea, which, extending the metaphor, brings manifold waves of affliction, persecution, and suffering into our lives. Jesus is teaching us that in this world, we will face persecution and opposition because we are Christians, we are Christ followers, and that we will face varying degrees of mental, emotional, and physical suffering because the world is broken as a result of sin. They're both here, I think, even though persecution, the opposition, receives, we might say, the emphasis. But what about today? What about tribulation in our day? Well, in America, at least, right now, biblical Christians are facing increasing cultural opposition. You don't need me up here to tell you that. But here are some examples. You will be, if you have not already, been maligned as bigots, prudish, and on the wrong side of history because you uphold biblical marriage as between one man and one woman. You will be, if not already, labeled misogynists, anti-women, because you believe babies are persons fearfully and wonderfully knit together by God in their mother's wombs and therefore unspeakably precious, worthy of life, and not to be aborted. You will be, if not already, labeled intolerant, insensitive, and intellectually silly because you believe that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. In the words of Peter, 
one of Jesus' closest disciples. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. In the world, you will have tribulation, opposition, because you belong to Jesus. And you will also face other afflictions that are part and parcel of life in this fallen world. Everything from anxiety to Alzheimer's, sadness and sickness, depression and disability. Such afflictions befall Christians. Yes, Christians in this world. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And most importantly, do not read such tribulation, whether it's of the opposition kind or of the suffering kind. Do not read such tribulation as evidence that God is against you, that he doesn't love you. Because of Jesus and because of some of the other things he says in this very text, nothing could be further from the truth. Expect tribulation. That's the first way we learn to take heart. The second way is by remembering the victory of Jesus. That's where he goes right after his exhortation to take heart. Notice again, the end of verse 33. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The very world that is the the sphere in which we experience tribulation has, according to Jesus, already been overcome by him. Now, what does that mean? How can that be? How can it be that he overcame the world that we continue to face tribulation in? And furthermore, because we still face tribulation in it, How is the knowledge that he has already overcome it supposed to encourage us? How is that supposed to help us take heart? Well, the consistent witness of the New Testament is that there are two stages to his overcoming or to his conquering, and they correspond with his two comings, his first coming and his second coming. The first is that he overcame, he conquered the world, By his death and resurrection in order to save sinners. He's a savior king. His death was not his defeat, but it was his decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death. The three major players that define the world for John. As D.A. Carson helpfully puts it in his commentary, the world is, quote, the created order in rebellion against its maker. The created order in rebellion against its maker. In fact, it was this overcoming of the world that we were just reflecting on a moment ago when we celebrated communion. Through the death of Jesus, through his broken body and shed blood, he purchased a people for himself. Or as John would later put it in the book of Revelation, he says, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Or hear these words from Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is how Jesus has already overcome the world. He is our Savior King who overcomes the shame and guilt and condemnation for all who would have him, who would receive him as their Savior, their Lord, and their greatest treasure. So I ask you this morning, have you received him? Have you trusted in him? The New Testament also speaks to this second overcoming, this second conquering that will happen when he comes again. And it's at that point that the wicked will be judged, believers will be vindicated, and God will set all things right. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who will afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Serious words. The wicked will be judged, the people of God granted relief and vindicated, and climactically for Christians then, death will finally be swallowed up in victory as resurrection and new creation take place. Thanks be to God, Paul exclaims, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The final judgment of the wicked and the vindication of Christians, the renewal of all creation, that is the future overcoming of Jesus, our warrior king, when he comes again. And so that two-stage nature of Jesus' overcoming helps explain for us how it is that he has overcome the world and at the same time how we still face tribulation in it. And it also explains how the news of Jesus' overcoming the world is encouraging and strengthening for us. Because of his overcoming our sin, our shame, and our guilt through his death and through his resurrection, we therefore are secure. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in the midst of the tribulations that you may be facing right now, remember the victory of Jesus and take heart. Whatever the world throws at you, it cannot undo this sovereign work of grace. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So remember the victory of Jesus. But now let's go back to the beginning of the verse. We've been in the middle, we've been to the end. Let's go back to the beginning of the verse to uncover the third way that we can take heart in the face of tribulation. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now what's so striking here is that Internal peace is given while external conflict 
and opposition abounds. In other words, Jesus is saying that though we are in the world and thus will face tribulation, we are also and more fundamentally in Him. And in Him, there is peace. Peace with God objectively. We're no longer enemies with God because of what Christ has done in our place. We're reconciled to God. We have objective peace, but also subjective peace, calm. This is not the power of positive thinking. This peace does not originate with you. It is a supernatural peace originating with Jesus and in union with him by faith given to you, to me. It is his peace. Martin Luther King Jr. had a powerful realization and experience of this at the time when, fighting for civil rights, things started deteriorating, when threats were becoming more common and people were being beaten, sometimes even killed. He wrote a sermon called, Our God is Able, which eventually was turned into a larger book called Strength to Love. In the midst of this situation, indeed, tribulation, Dr. King testified with these words. It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same. But God had given me inner calm. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. They were out of town when that happened. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I know now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms of life. Indeed, God is able. In Jesus, he gives you his peace Like he did for Dr. King, he can do for you. So receive his peace this morning. So we've seen that in order to take heart, we have to expect tribulation in the world, to remember Jesus' victory, and receive his peace. But there's one more crucial thing we need to draw out. It really is an implication of remembering Jesus' victory over the world. It goes very tightly with it. it. It's this, that we need to rest in our own certain victory as those who belong to Jesus. And what's underlying this is the logic of participation. In other words, when you believe in Jesus, you are spiritually united to him such that you really participate with him in his saving acts. Just give you an example of this. We see it in baptism. This is how Paul speaks in Romans 6. In baptism, you are, Paul says, buried with him and raised with him. And in his death, you die. In his life, you live. What is true of Jesus becomes, by virtue of union with him, by faith, true for you. Participation. And amazingly, John makes this connection with respect to Jesus' victory and ours. So in order to see this, we've got to turn to the little book of 1 John. So go there towards the end of the New Testament. 
1 John is the same author as the Gospel of John, same person, wrote both of these. 1 John, look with me at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. And watch, as I read, for the striking similarity in language. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And now skip down to verse 12. What does this victory ultimately issue? Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So taking those texts together, we see that our faith in Jesus is our own victory that overcomes the world, and it results ultimately in life. Because Jesus overcame, we will overcome. Because he conquered, we will conquer. In him we can rest, therefore, in our own certain victory. We may die physically in this world, whether by physical deterioration or by persecution. Unless Jesus returns before then, we will die. But as Christians, we will ultimately not die because Jesus has conquered death. We belong to him. Victory is certain. As we just sang, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. So in this world, we will have tribulation. But we need not fear. We need not fear the growing cultural animosity toward us. We need not fear the emotional, mental, and physical afflictions that sooner or later come for us all. We need not fear being increasingly pushed to the margins, being mocked or maligned. Rather, let us be encouraged. Let us stand firm. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so college church, brothers and sisters, expect tribulation. But when it comes, when, as Calvin said, we face the troubled sea with its waves of persecution, opposition, social marginalization, and suffering, remember Jesus' victory. Receive his peace and rest in your certain victory in him. In a phrase, take heart. Take heart. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, this is a miracle that we cannot achieve on our own. To experience your peace in such a way to have the effect 
of remembering your victory and resting in our own certain victory for those things to grant courage and resolve and peace in the midst of tribulation, we need you to grant it. And so I pray, do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.